All the things that I have held dear, the vanities have whispered in my ear. What would I do if they all disappeared? Riches and fame and all that they could buy, I've come to find they never satisfy. What would I gain if my soul's a prize? And I don't wanna love like the world does. I don't wanna chase what the world does. I only want you. I only want you. First things first, I seek your will.
pastor friend of mine from India was over visiting Nashville a while back and, and he, uh, he toured the city and walked the streets. And my friend Dave Clayton, a pastor at Ethos Church in town, he asked him, he said, what'd you think of Nashville? And, uh, and the pastor from India said, uh, so, well, I had a great time here, but, um, but I had a hard time with all of the, with all of the idolatry. And uh, that got my attention because they have over 300 million idols in India. You mean idolatry. And so I asked him about that. I said, can you, uh, can you clarify what you meant? And this was his response. He said, idol worship is very common in India. We know that people make idols with mud and some other items, and they decorate them and worship those idols. But my understanding of idolatry is not just so-called worship of man-made materials. It is beyond that. There are so many idols around us. Maybe an addiction, addiction of money, addiction of wine, addiction of opposite sex, etc. Actually, idolatry is an action or thought which takes the human heart far from God. Our people tend to worship or give more priority to those things than God. God should be our first priority. But if we put something or somebody in the place of God, that is my idol. And I am worshiping those things instead of God. He said, as I was walking on the street of downtown Nashville, I observed that people are crazy for something. They are enjoying their lives with worldly pleasures, and I believe that worldly pleasure can be their God. They are spending their money and their time for that pleasure which ultimately leads toward destruction. Though they don't make any idols for worship, but that pleasure became an idol in their lives. That is absolutely my observation. I may be wrong, brother, but that is my observation. I, I love his humility. I may be wrong, brother, but that's my observation. David Foster Wallace, an, uh, an author, he says, fish don't know that they're in water. In other words, if you try to tell a fish that they're in water, they're gonna say, what's water? And sometimes it's hard to see the very things that we're swimming in. Sometimes we need a prophet or a pastor from India to say something for us to begin to think, or sometimes we just need a whisper of the Spirit of God inside of us to identify those idols. And it is out of God's love that he identifies the idols in our hearts because the things of this world can never satisfy. Only he can satisfy. And so our prayer is, and I want to invite you to join me in prayer and just ask God, if there's anything in my life that I am putting my trust in, that I am loving more than you, that I'm going to as a source for satisfaction or significance or worth or value more than you, out of your love for me, God, would you reveal that so I can put my trust in you? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you that life works the way that you've instructed us. And that you say, when we put first things first, everything else falls into place. And so I pray today that there would be a reordering of our hearts. And that God, out of your love for us, that we would see, we would see if there's anything that we're trusting more than you. And today, I thank you that, uh, that repentance, that it can happen in a moment. And by your grace, we're never more than a prayer away. So would you reveal the things that we may be trusting more than you? I love him more than you. And would we set our affection, set our attention on you? Would we give you our worship today? And would you revive, would you renew a right spirit in us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if, you, uh, if you're new with us, 
Well, welcome to the final week of the series. Uh, we're finishing up a series called First Things First. Well, what we're looking at, we're looking at the order of life, and we all get to choose what is first in our lives. Really, this series is a series of values. It's a series we're talking about priority. It's a series where we're talking about worship, and the anchor for, our, for the series is Matthew chapter 6, um, verse 33. And so that's, a, that's the anchor verse for our series. So what I want to do today, here's what I want to do. I want to read that verse in its entire context. I want to give us a recap of what we talked about last week. And then I want to talk about, well, how do, we, how do we dethrone these idols in our lives? How do we experience a first things first kind of life? And so we're going to read that verse in its entire context. If you've got a Bible, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. You can look on with your neighbor. You can follow along on the screen. You can... Pull it up in the Bible app. You got a lot of options today. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to pick up in verse 24. And it says, No one can serve two masters. So here's before we read, I just want you to imagine that you're with those disciples on the side of that mountain and you're listening to Jesus teach this to you. Let's just take in these words of Christ. Let's take in the teaching. He says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For for the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. When you run it back, what you see is that this is not just a conversation about worry. It's a conversation about worship. It's a conversation about worship. And what Jesus is talking about here, he's talking about that that there are things that we worship, and he tells us that that we can't worship both God and money. He's he's, he's telling us that that money makes a a terrible God. But really what Jesus is saying, he's saying it's not just about money. We can't worship two of anything. We can't worship two of anything. So this is a conversation. He sets it up as a conversation about worship. And really, it goes back to what we talked about last week, that in every heart, there is a throne. In every heart, there is a throne, and there is only a seat for one on the throne, and that something's on the throne of our life. And what is on the throne, that's the thing that we give most value to. That's the thing that we give our our worship to. To worship means to ascribe worth or or highest value in our lives. And there can be many different things on the throne of our lives. It can be God or money or sex or food or comfort or family, relationships, politics, education, popularity, approval, fame, power, career, fitness, ministry, 
There, any, anything that's good, anything that's a gift from God, we can then take and, and that good thing can become an ultimate thing and it can become the thing that we worship in our lives. And go, well, what's on the throne of our hearts? Well, all we have to do is we follow the red carpet. And we follow the red carpet of our time, of our energy, of our devotion, of our allegiance, of our passion, of our affections. We follow the red carpet and it leads us to a throne. And in all of our hearts, there is a throne. And that, what's on that throne is what we worship. And Jesus is teaching us, he's teaching us that, that, that satisfaction and fulfillment, that life the way God designed is that he would be first in our lives, that he would be first in our hearts. And when Jesus says, even the pagans run after all these things, who are the pagans? Well, if you're the disciples and you're there with the disciples in that first century, century context, you're thinking of the Romans. You're thinking of the Greco-Romans with, with, all of their, with all of their temples and their idols and their gods and their goddesses. Temples like like the Parthenon. Um, um, if you're new to town, if you're visiting for the CMAs, uh, on the other side of town, there is an, there's an, a, a full-size replica of the Parthenon um, like exists in Athens, Greece. And, uh, and it, was, it was built over 100 years ago for the, for the World's Fair. It was built, uh, Athens was, I mean, Nashville was known as the Athens of the South. And so it was built as a nod to that. And, uh, and it's a full-size replica. Um, I was actually able to go to Greece and see the, the other Parthenon um, to see that, um, the original Parthenon. And I'll just tell you, ours is much nicer. It's better. It is much cleaner. It's uh, more, but just save your money. Save your money and go to the west side of town. And so... Um, so go in, go in, and if you, if you pay the money, you get to go inside, and you see that there is a full-scale there's a full scale, um, statue of Athena. Um, it would have been a, it's a replica of what would have been in Athens, Greece, back in the day, and it is this 42-foot statue, and, and it's, it's a little bit eerie to walk in there and just to think that, like, thousands of years ago, people would have gone into a temple like that to, to worship, to offer sacrifices, to offer their offerings, and, uh, and to worship uh, a statue like that in a temple like that thousands of years ago. And, and what we, when we go back and we look, we see that idols weren't just these decorative uh, pieces of, of, of wood or of stone. They weren't just something that people went to purchase to go and decorate their own homes or even to worship in their own homes. What we see is the, that society, an entire societal structure was built around the worship of these idols. When you go back and you look, you see that, that people, their, their social life and their, their political life and their personal life were all wrapped up in worshiping these gods and their goddesses. And Athens was known as the, uh, as it was known as the city of gods. And so there were a lot of difference, a lot of different worship going on. So just kind of paint a picture of what that might have looked like like back in that day, um, if, if you had a particular need, you would go to the particular God who could help you with that, that need. So you would go to that temple. So for example, if, if you wanted that God to do something for you, like um, let's say that you needed, you needed uh, water for, you need rain for your crops. Well, if that was the case, then you would, uh, then you would go and you would present your offering to Zeus. And uh, you would give up your offering to Zeus to try to get rain for your crops. But if you needed, if you're doing an overseas travel, Zeus couldn't help you with that, and so you would go, that moment, at that point, you would go to Poseidon to be able to help you with that, and then if you, want, if you want to be beautiful, Poseidon couldn't help you with that, so then you would go to the temple of Aphrodite, and if you, if you, need, if you, wanted, um, if you wanted beauty, but if, if you wanted to win in battle, Aphrodite couldn't help you with that, and so then you would go to the temple of Athena to pray for protection, and, and Athena can't help you if you want to fall in love. If that was the case, you would go to Eros. You'd go to Eros, go to, go to that temple to be able to worship, and if you wanted to win in business, you'd go 
to Artemis. And, and then if you want to win socially, you go to Dion, Dionysus. And so they, they did crazy things when they went, not safe for work, not safe for church conversation about what they did at these, at these temples and at these places of worship as they worshiped the gods and the goddesses. And so they would go from place to place and it was this transactional. And so sometimes we can think of that and we can just say, oh, that's what they did back then. And it just involved uh, prayer or worship of statues, but really there were spiritual forces at play. There were demonic spiritual forces at play because the enemy wants us wrapped up in any enslaved to anything other than the freedom that Jesus brings. And so the enemy wanted, wants them wrapped up. And so they were running all over. That's the picture. They're running all over from, from temple to temple, from God to goddess. They're running, trying to find satisfaction and meaning and security and strength in this, in this idol worship. And so when Jesus says, for the pagans run after all these things, he's telling us there's a better way to live. He's saying, don't you know that your father in heaven, not these powerless, worthless idols, but your Father in heaven, he knows what you need before you even ask. He's gonna care for you. So Jesus teaches us that there's a different way to live, there's a better way to live. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. He's saying, you have a Father in heaven who is everything you've ever longed for in a dad. He is present, he is active, he is unconditional in his love, he protects, he guides, he leads, you trust in him. So the pagans run after all, they're running all over the place, but you can live from a place of rest and from a place of peace and from a place of trust. And we live first things first. Well, why do we run all over the place? Why do we run after all these things? Well, let's go back and look at Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one and we read Paul lays it out. He's like, here's how we got from this, this worship of the one true God. Here's how we got to idolatry. Pick up in verse 21. It says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But in their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. But Paul is what he's telling us is that we were made to know God. We were made to experience that life-giving relationship that we would be known by him and that we would know him and we would experience his love in our life and that he would fill our lives with his, with, with his love and that we would enjoy the beauty of creation and we would enjoy the beauty of our creator and that there would be through, through trust in him that we would experience peace in life and worship of him. But then he says what happened is we went and began to worship Created things, and that is the definition of idolatry. If you're taking notes, that idolatry is worshiping created things rather than the creator, rather than the creator. And the nation of Israel, they took pride in the fact that they didn't have, that they didn't worship idols. I mean, when you go back and you look and you read the story, you see that, that on Mount Sinai, God gave 10 commandments and the first two, 10 com first two commandments, those 10 commandments that we find in Torah, the first two, the first one is thou shalt not have any other gods before me. And the second is no graven image. 
And so they took pride in the fact that they didn't have like the other nations. They weren't like the other nations in that they didn't have these idols that they ran to. And so you can imagine when Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 14, when he comes to the religious leaders and Ezekiel says to these religious leaders, he says, you have idols, but you have them in your heart. He says, you have idols, you have them in your heart. He says two times, he says, your heart is a temple full of idols. And then what does he tell them in verse six? He says, therefore, say to the people of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says, repent, turn from your idols and renounce all your detestable practices. He's saying, repent. You know what repent means? It means to come back home. It means to come back home to who you were made to be so you can live how you were made to live, so you can live with with this life-giving relationship with God. So he says, repent. Ezekiel calls him to repent. And the temptation to worship invisible idols is, is just as real as it was back then. I mean, at least in India, you know where the idols are. But Calvin says that their heart is like an idol factory. It's like a factory that just makes, we can make an idol out of anything. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that really is your God. So anything can become an idol. Marriage, sexual freedom, fame, family, political ideology, money, food, comfort, alcohol, relationships, education, approval, power, career, fitness, ministry, anything that we talked about on the throne of our hearts, anything can become an idol in our hearts and in our lives. And remember, when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, that's when it becomes an idol in our lives. And we need the Holy Spirit to help us see the things that we can't see. Because we, 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 can't, we can't see it in our own strength, and our own power, but the Holy Spirit leads us to, Scripture says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's what God wants for us. He wants freedom for our hearts and freedom for our lives, that we would see these things. We wouldn't trust in other things, but we'd put our trust in Him. And if we want to know what the idols are, oh, we got to slow down. We gotta slow down. Sometimes the way that we, um, that we stay wrapped up in idolatry is we just keep going and we keep moving. But when we slow down, when we're still enough, maybe get on the back porch or maybe go for a walk at the park, or maybe walk around the neighborhood, or maybe, just, maybe just find your favorite chair and just sit and ask the Spirit of God, is there, is there anything that I'm trusting in more than you? Our team put together a resource to be able to help us with this so we can continue the conversation. It's at crosspoint.tv slash first things. And there are a list of questions there, but I just wanna give you a couple questions just to get us thinking in that way. Help us identify those idols. Here's the first one. What do I tend to worry about the most? What do I run to when I get bad news? What do I wanna make sure that people know about me when I first meet them? What makes me feel the most self-worth? Is there anything that controls me? Is there anything in my life that I would say is off limit? That if God wants to put his finger on it, I go, that's off limits over there. And I would just say this, just to encourage you. When God reveals something, confess it. See, confession is the, is the first step to healing. Confession is the first step to freedom. It, it, the scripture says, let me show you a scripture. In, in 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Let me show you another verse that goes along with that. It's James 5, 16. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. It says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So those two things, if you want to be forgiven, confess to God. If you want to feel forgiven, confess to another person. 
See, I think a lot of us, we confess to God, and we confess to God, we confess to God, but we don't feel that forgiveness that comes from confessing to another person. This past week, I was having a conversation with Dr. Jacques Boy, who pastors Mount Bethel Missionary Baptist Church across town, and we became friends because both of the church buildings that we pastor in were hit by a tornado. That's a way to bond. And so we became friends, and we were talking this week, and we were walking around the parking lot and just talking, and I, I began to confess some of the idols in my heart with him. Some of the things that have become idols in my heart, and I confessed them to him. You want to know what they are? You need to mind your own business. But I, I confess. <laughs> hey, you don't tell everything to everybody. We just, we just have somebody that we share our struggles with. So make sure you have somebody. But you don't have to tell, you don't have to tell everything to everybody. That's not what Facebook is for. I don't know what Facebook is for. But you do need to have somebody that you share your struggles with. And so I was telling him some of the struggles that I have. And have you ever noticed when you tell somebody what you're struggling with, they never look at you and go, I had no idea. I mean, if they're a good friend, <laughs> usually we're like, hey, man, I'm, really, I'm struggling with control. They don't, they don't go, I had no idea. No, they know. Like the people around you know what you're struggling with. We call it self-awareness. It's, just, it's being self-aware. And when we share those things, like, man, I really struggle with fear or I really struggle with control. And we share those things, oftentimes what we hear it's like, you know what, me too. Like, I'm struggling with those things too. And what it takes is somebody being brave enough and somebody being courageous enough and somebody being strong enough and vulnerable enough. And vulnerability is strength and sharing what they struggle. And what happens is when somebody else comes and prays with you, that's how strongholds are broken. When we share our struggles and when we share those idols, it's one way we dethrone, we confess to another person and have them pray, to a godly friend and have them pray for us. There is power in that. Because the, the, the alternate thing that we do is we deny it. And there is no such thing as a benign idol. See, idols that stay hidden, idols that stay covered up, we're only as sick as our secrets. And so we keep those things in secret and keep them in the dark. We can't find freedom. I've been, thinking, I've been thinking about this, and, um, and I was thinking about what that pastor from India said when he talked about, about pleasure, and then it, it reminded me of something that I, that I read um, from Oscar Wilde, who many would say is one of the greatest literary figures of all time. And, uh, and when that pastor talked about and the idol of pleasure, listen to what uh, Oscar Wilde, and if, 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 if you know, I mean, he's a fantastic um, writer, author. But this was written toward the end of his life after he had squandered his life. And listen to what he says. He says, I must say to myself that I ruined myself and that nobody great or small can be ruined except by his own hand. Terrible is what the world did to me. What I did to myself was far more terrible still. I mean, his greatest desire in life was to, was to do great literary work, poetry. But the, but the problem is, as he admits it, he says, I loved pleasure more. He said, I allowed pleasure to dominate me and I have ended up, ended in horrible disgrace. I mean, that's a tragic story. 45 years old, he died penniless. And that's the thing about invisible idols is they can be sneaky and they can be subversive and they take and they take and they take and they can never satisfy and they can never fulfill us. And they promise us security and they promise us satisfaction, but they overpromise and they underdeliver. And they live us in, they leave us enslaved and broken, and we become like what we worship. 
Now, there was a contemporary of Oscar Wilde in London at that time, and his name was, uh, his name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Look at what he writes. He says, nothing, teach, nothing teaches us about the preciousness of the creator as much as when we learn the emptiness of everything else. And Spurgeon was one of the greatest preachers of all time. They called him the prince of preachers. But can I tell you, God loves the prince of preachers, Haddon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, as much as he loves the prince of pleasure, Oscar Wilde. And his heart's desire is that both would come to know him. And Charles Spurgeon needed saving as much as Oscar Wilde needs saving. In scripture, and you probably know John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, loved the world, loves everybody, loves you, that he gave his one and only son, because whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's John 3, 16. But do you know John 3, 17, the verse after? The verse after, John 3, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So as we talk about idols, sometimes when, we re when he reveals those things, it's not his condemnation. It's conviction. He's not, he's not, God is not heaping shame on us. He's revealing those things out of his love because it's his desire to save us from the things that would take us out. In Jesus, his promise is to save us from, from eternal hell, but also what happens is he saves us from the hell that we can bring into our own laps and the choices that we make. And that's the salvation that Jesus makes. That's the salvation that Jesus promises. And so we all need saving. The, the, the moralist needs, as much, needs saving just as much as the hedonist. The legalist needs to be saved as much as those in licentiousness. Like everyone needs salvation. And Jesus saves us from our own attempts to save ourselves in religion. Because religion can come, become an idol. And Jesus calls us to dethrone the idols and to turn our hearts. So how do we dethrone the idols? How do we get the idols off our hearts? Have, have you ever ended up somewhere you didn't want to be? Like jail? Have you, ever, have you ever ended up somewhere you didn't want to be? Like in a toxic relationship? Have you ever ended up somewhere you didn't want to be? Like Applebee's? Have you ever, like, have you ever ended, up, ended up somewhere Then you're like, how did I get here? Well, what's great about this is that Paul gives us, he gives us the trail of how we got here. He's like, here's how we get to idolatry. We stop giving glory to God. We stop giving thanks to God and we stop serving our creator. So if we want, if we want to know the path, that's the path, that's the path. Because what I don't want you to think is that God doesn't want us to have pleasure. No, God wants us to have pleasure. He just has greater pleasure. He has a greater pleasure for us. I want you to see in Psalm 16, 11, it says, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your, at your right hand. God created pleasure. He wants us, he wants our hearts to be full of pleasure. This is what C.S. Lewis writes, what he says. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like, the ignorant, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Says God, would you give us a vision of greater pleasure? Would you help us see what pleasure looks like? Would you help us see the pathway, what the pathway looks like to that, that path of life that the psalmist talks about? And the path of life, what we're going to do, we're going to flip the script. If you're wondering, how do we dethrone the idols and how do we live with a full heart? 
How do we live with Jesus on the throne of our heart? We flip the script. The first thing is, instead of stop giving God glory, we give God glory. We give God glory in everything. We give God glory in, in all things. What does it mean to give God glory? It means to please him. It means to, it means to put him first. It means to praise him, to make much of him. The Westminster Catechism says this. It says, the chief end of man or the purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. John Piper takes that twisted a little bit. He said, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. And that we would be satisfied, our satisfaction would be in him. So what does it look like? How do we glorify God in all things? Well, 1 Corinthians 6, 20 says we, can, we glorify God with our bodies. 2 Corinthians 9, 13 says we glorify God with our obedience. 1 Peter 2, 12 says we glorify God with our good deeds. 1 Peter 4, 16 says we can glorify God even in our suffering. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, so whatever we eat or drink or whatever we do, do it all for the glory of God. So if we can't do it for the glory of God, we probably shouldn't do it. But if we can do it and give glory to God in that same way, we glorify God in all things. And that Greek word, whatever we do, you know what that Greek word, whatever means? It means whatever. Even CrossFit. If you were here last week, remember I told you that uh, how CrossFit became an idol for me in my heart. And what one guy told me is that what he got from that message is he didn't have to work out. And that was not the point of the message, but the <laughs> point was that we can make anything an idol in our, in our hearts. And so I want to tell you how, how, I, I, how there was this stronghold that was broken. So, so I realized that CrossFit had become an idol for me. And so here's, here are some things that I asked God. I said, how can I still enjoy CrossFit without, without it becoming an idol in my heart? And the first thing I realized is I need to take a break. Again, for some of you to hear, take a break from working out, that sounds like an amazing thing. And, uh, and it was. It was an amazing thing for, for a while. And so I took a break. Sometimes if there's something that's an idol in your heart, sometimes taking a break is what breaks the stronghold. And so it was taking a break, and I took, I took a break 40 days, and I did other things. I worked out in other ways, but I just took a break from that. The second, second thing that, that I did is, uh, so the first is taking a break. The second is that I changed the order. See, I was starting my morning, and that was the first thing that I was doing. So I changed the order, and so then I started spending time in prayer and in the Word before I went to, before, and that might not seem like a big deal to you, and I'm not being legalistic. I'm not saying that you have to do this. I'm just telling you, this is what I did to, to change the order up, and so I spent time, and it was the first thing's first expression for me, so it was the first thing that I did. The third thing is I took a Sabbath. Um, I, there was a point where I was working out seven days a week, and so I took a Sabbath. I took a day, a day off. So whatever, you can just plug in whatever that, that idle thing might be in your heart. So the first, first thing that I did was uh, I took a break. The second thing is that I changed the order in my day. And then the third thing I did was I took a Sabbath. So there was one day where I didn't do anything. And then the fourth, I think is the most powerful. The fourth is I found a, I found a greater why. I found a bigger purpose. And I began to say, how can, I, how can I approach the gym in a way where I have a purpose greater than just working out? Because when I would go before and I'm competitive, I wanted to win the gym. I wanted to be the fastest and the best. And I wasn't, but I wanted to be. And so I was consumed with that desire. And what changed is instead of wanting to win the workout, I wanted to win the gym to Jesus. I wanted other people to find Christ. And so what happens, I began to pray with other people, have spiritual conversations, invite other people to church. I began to look for opportunities to love and to serve other people in the gym. And rather than being focused on me and my time up on the board, 
I focused on how can I use this time to most glorify God. I found, I found a purpose bigger than burpees. I found a purpose bigger, bigger than, than working out. It was how can I use this to help other people? And if, if work has become an idol for you or a relationship has become an idol for you, or maybe a hobby has become an idol for you, how can I use this thing to bring glory to God and bring people to Jesus? How can I live on mission? So first, give God glory in all things. Second, give God thanks in all things. Give God thanks in all things. Paul said we stop giving thanks and turn to idols. First, first Thessalonians 5.18 says, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is not saying that we have to thank God for, every, for bad things that happen in our lives. He's just saying no matter how bad it is, there's always something that we can thank God for. And so in all of our circumstances, we give thanks to Jesus. And what, what we see is when God gives us a gift and we don't return it in thanks, it shows up as entitlement. Because what happens, we become so focused on the gift that we lose sight of the giver. And when we give thanks to God for the good things in our lives, it helps us look past him so that those good things don't become ultimate things. They ultimately become things that take us out. And so we give thanks in all things. That saves us from idolatry. It saves us from entitlement. And then third, we serve the creator. We serve the creator. Paul says they stopped serving the creator and started serving created things. In Galatians 5.13, it says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Man, we've been set free. So we no longer serve the idols of this world. We serve our creator. This past week, I had something interesting happen. I had a, um, I'll just tell you what, my, what happened with my kids. Raleigh, my oldest daughter, she got an invitation to go on a mission trip with some folks. Um, Camden, somebody reached out to her and encouraged her and her music and song, and Durham had a conversation with a young life leader that just may have changed the kind of trajectory of his life, just made a big difference in his heart. Bolton had a, had a hitting coach from the church reach out and, um, and spend time with him and work on his hitting, and uh, I'll tell you kind of the reflection on all that, the reason I share all that is because I realize you want to do something, um, for if you're a parent, you just know there's, there is nothing that blesses a parent like when somebody does something for your kids. And I'm not sharing those stories to go, hey, do stuff for my kids. I'm just saying that so we go, I don't know if anything blesses the heart of God more, heart of the Father, than when we do stuff for his kids. And we serve our creator by serving people who are made in his image. And it blesses him in a unique way when we see the people that are normally overlooked when we value the people who are normally undervalued, when we see the people that other people don't see and we serve them, it blesses the Father's heart. And it also saves us from idolatry. That we would give glory to God in all things, that we would give thanks to God in all things, and that we would serve God by serving people. It's just another way that we keep Jesus on the throne of our hearts. But I wanna leave you with this thought I'd love for you to take this with you into your week and for us to put it in practice together. It's a thought that comes from an, an old Scottish preacher named Thomas Chalmers. In 1820, 
He wrote a book, and in the book, he answers the question, he asks the question, how shall the human heart be freed from old affections? And he said, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. He called it the, the expulsive power of a new affection. So if you wanna blast those idols off of our hearts, if we wanna dethrone the idols of our heart, what we need is a greater affection. What we need is to pour our love out on Jesus that we would, we would put him first, that we would make him first, that we would worship him, that we would praise him because when we praise him, and we see him for who he is and his majesty and his glory and his love for us, we catch a, a fresh vision of who he is in our hearts. It's the expulsive power of a greater affection that dethrones the idols and puts first things first. And so I wanna pray that over you and then we're gonna worship we're gonna give thanks, we're gonna give glory, we're gonna give praise. Let's pray together. So Jesus, we thank you that you are our greater affection. Your love for us is poured out on the cross. That you are our source of strength and satisfaction, purpose and meaning. Thank you for how you have revealed your love to us. So today we receive your love. And I pray that as you reveal those idols in our hearts, would you give us the courage and the vulnerability to confess it? Would we be a no secrets kind of church, no secrets kind of people? And as we confess those things, simultaneously we bring you to the center of our hearts. And would you give us a new affection? Would you renew a right spirit in us? Would you restore the joy of our salvation that is greater than any joy that the world can offer? And would you be enthroned on the praises of your people as we give you gratitude and as we sing, we give you glory together. In Jesus' name, amen. could sing these songs as I often do. Every song must end, but you never do. So I throw up my hands, praise you again and again. So Just one move 
Sing this one last time. So I throw up my head. 